On May 24, 2009, at the annual meeting of the American Psychological Science, or Association for Psychological Science in San Francisco, the University of Kansas and Gallup presented their findings from a recent poll. This data was taken from what's called the World Gallup Poll, in which 150,000 people from 140 countries were surveyed. The surveyors believe this represented a sample of about 95% of the world's population. And their findings are very insightful. 89% of people worldwide expect the next five years to be as good or better than their current life. 95% of those surveyed expect their life in five years to be as good or better than their life was five years ago. Regardless of race or ethnicity, whether one was rich or poor, male or female, irrespective of whether we live under corrupt or less corrupt governments, regardless of whether a person is religious or irreligious, human beings are innately hopeful. One might say we are hardwired to believe the future will be greater or better than the past. Or as Martin Luther once said, everything that is done in the world is done in hope. When we talk about biblical hope, there are two essential points to bear in mind. First, we should remember what the Greek word means. Bill Mounts in his dictionary defines hope as trust, confidence, security. Thayer defines it as a joyful and confident expectation. Strong's, an expectation or confidence. These definitions agree that biblical hope is confident. I don't wish something will happen. I am confident that it will happen. That is biblical hope. This is why the writer of Hebrews describes hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence of behind the veil, Hebrews 6, 19. Consider the example of Abraham, and we'll be talking about Abraham quite a lot in this lesson. In Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes of Abraham, Therefore the promise is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Genesis 15 tells us Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or as Paul explains in Romans 4, Abraham was justified by his belief in God. And in response to Abraham's faith, God promised him that he would be the father of many nations. At the time the promise was made, Abraham was an old man. His wife was barren. 
and the prospect of children seemed bleak. But God's power to give life to the dead gave Abraham every reason to believe that one day he would have descendants. Contrary to hope, in hope, he believed. When Paul says Abraham in hope believed, he tells us that Abraham was supremely confident that God would indeed fulfill his promise. A few verses later in verses 20 and 21, notice what he says about Abraham. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. When God promised the impossible, Abraham was confident beyond the shadow of a doubt that God would keep his promise. The example of Abraham shows us why godly hope differs from worldly hope. While worldly hope wishes and dreams, godly hope is fully convinced and confident. The second point to bear in mind about hope, the second point to bear in mind is the context in which hope is used. Hope is always used in the context of what will happen in the future. <clears throat> Pardon me. The words expectation and prospect are used in the definitions of hope. Hope is forward-looking and forward-thinking. It anticipates what will happen in the future. And it is supremely confident that a better future awaits. Returning to the example of Abraham, we know we note what lay ahead for the descendants of Abraham, and that what lay ahead was better than what Abraham himself had known. As the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham and others, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Though Abraham had every reason to doubt, he chose to believe in a better future. And his belief was not wishful thinking. He was supremely confident in God's power to make that better future a reality. For the Christian, our hope for a better future rests on the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Savior. Consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. The hope we have is a living hope. It should always be present always alive, always vibrant. And our hope is assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our father Abraham trusted in the power of God to raise Sarah's womb from the dead so that the promise of God would be fulfilled. We too trust in the power of God to raise the dead. And like our father Abraham, our faith and our hope are in God. And the future glory that we anticipate, it is real, it is secure, 
and our place with God awaits our arrival. So Christian hope is inextricably linked with a dogged, unflagging, unwavering belief in a future resurrection from the dead, an eternal glory that is promised to us in Jesus Christ. The future is indeed greater than the past. But in order for his descendants to become a great nation and for God's promise of a better future to become a reality, Abraham had to leave Haran. Before he makes the first promise in the 12th chapter of Genesis, God tells Abraham to get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. By heeding the command of God, Abraham set his life and the lives of his descendants on a path towards something far greater than what he had known. Had Abraham remained in Haran, we have no reason to believe that the promise of God would have been fulfilled. So in order for his better future to become a reality, Abraham had to act. Here is another important component of Christian hope. Hopeful people believe they have a hand in making their better future a reality. Returning to 1 Peter chapter 1, later in verse 13, the apostle urges, up to, urges us to gird up the loins of our mind, to be sober, to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven. For the first time we will see him with our own eyes crowned in heavenly majesty and glory. Peter tells us to rest our hope fully upon this grace. Again, biblical hope should be certain, confident, and forward-looking toward this future glory with Jesus Christ. And based upon that hope for the future, we are compelled to act so that that hope becomes reality. As we rest our hope fully upon the return of Jesus, Peter tells us to gird up the loins of our mind, to prepare our minds for action, to be alert, sober, and serious. Because true hope does not sit idly by in the expectations that good things are just going to come to us. Rather, hope compels the hopeful to act. If we want our future to be better than our past or present, then we must seize the opportunity before us. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John looks ahead to when we will see Jesus as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. John articulates a clear vision for the future. He speaks of our hope for a resurrected body, fashioned after the body of Jesus. And if we want that better future, if we want that better body, if we want that better eternity, we need to act. We must purify and consecrate our lives. Because hopeful people act in order to make that better future happen. 
In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I look for the appearing of Jesus, what should I do? Deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Peter tells us to make our call and election sure by diligently growing in faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness and love. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. If I want my call and election to be sure, I need to grow in these Christian virtues. The writer of Hebrews desires that each one of us should, so, should show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Diligent. Holding on to that hope until the very end. Do not be sluggish. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The writer of Hebrews says later in chapter 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If we want our future to be better, we must act. Otherwise, our hope is just wishful thinking. But hopeful people realize that our path to eternal life may look different from the paths that others tread. In Hebrews chapter 11, we often call that chapter the chapter of faith. In that chapter, we have many examples of men and women of faith. But those folks shared more than just faith. Consider what's said about Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, we're told that our patriarch waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was waiting for the heavenly city. The writer of Hebrews observes later in verse 19 that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac, the son of promise, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. These are hopeful statements. Abraham was looking toward something far, far better. We see these strains of hope in other places in Hebrews chapter 11. For example, in verses 13 and 16, the writer says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They saw the fulfillment of God's promises afar off. They could see that a better future awaited them. They embraced them, even though these promises were intended for other generations. They accepted them in hope. And they looked for something far better beyond this world, a heavenly country, which compelled God to prepare a city. But for a moment, think about how radically different these folks' lives were from one another. 
They shared one faith and one hope, and yet their lives unfolded in very different ways. Noah lived in the most wicked age of the earth and saw it destroyed by water. Sarah was unable to conceive children until she was an elderly woman. Moses was born in a time of infanticide, grew up in the household of Pharaoh, spent 40 years in exile as a shepherd and led the children of Israel out of Egypt, accompanied by spectacular displays of divine power. Rahab was a harlot who chose to cast her lot with the children of Israel in the hopes of rescuing herself and her family. Jephthah was an illegitimate child who spent time as a vagabond and a thief, but later led Israel victorious over the Ammonites. And the contrasting lives could go on and on, but here's my point. These people shared one faith and one hope, but the course of their lives was very, very different. And consequently, the diverse records of their lives helped us to be optimistic about our own. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Hopeful people realize that not all paths to heaven will look the same. Some die young while others live many years. Some enter heaven after waging lifelong battles with depression or anxiety or chronic health problems. Some constantly seek freedom from the chains of addiction. Though all paths follow after Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, all paths to heaven do not look the same. But we all share the same faith and hope. Back in Romans 4, Paul highlights the faith and hope of Abraham. But it's worth remembering that when Abraham left Haran, things did not go well for him. Think of all that happened to Abraham prior to his justification by faith in Genesis 15. Prior to that point, in addition to Sarah's infertility, they were faced with a famine. He feared his wife would be snatched away by the Pharaoh of Egypt. He had to part ways with his nephew Lot, and Lot was kidnapped and had to be rescued. Pardon the pun, but a lot happened to Abraham. A lot happened to him between the first time God called him and his justification by faith. And the trials didn't stop. They didn't stop after God declared him righteous. Hagar and Ishmael introduced strife into his marriage. Lot barely escaped Sodom and Gomorrah when they were wiped off the face of the earth. Abraham feared another king would take Sarah from him, and there's more strife over Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham faced a lot of trouble in his life. And it's against the backdrop of Abraham's history that Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character, hope. Hopeful people understand that our path to a better future will not be free from obstacles. We cannot reach hope without going through trials and troubles. So Paul counsels us to glory in tribulation. 
Christians are not exempt from experiencing trouble. As Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. In the first century, those who came to faith in Jesus Christ did so under the threat of nearly immediate persecution. Just take as one example the Thessalonian church. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul wanted no one in that congregation to be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. Paul only spent a few weeks preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. Persecution drove him out of town. Even though he was only with them for a short time, Paul prepared the Thessalonian church to face persecution. Because persecution was seen by the first century church not as a possibility, but as an inevitability. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 So Paul urges his readers to glory in tribulation. Or as he says later in chapter 8 verse 18 of Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No matter how poorly things may go for us, nothing we suffer compares with the glory that awaits. The future is indeed greater than the past or the present. In 2 Corinthians 4, which was written within a few months of the book of Romans, Paul talks of the pressures of persecution and reminds the brethren, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Notice in this passage how Paul emphasizes the renewal of the inward man, an allusion to the work of the Spirit. Notice how he sets suffering side by side with glory concluding that what we suffer cannot compare in magnitude with the glory that awaits. And finally, notice the attitude he encourages, how we should set our minds on what is unseen and eternal. Thus, the inward ministry of the Spirit, the certainty of a glorious resurrection, the shedding of our frail bodies subject to sin and death, and the mind set on what is spiritual and enduring, these are the crucial elements one needs to endure times of trial and trouble. Undergirding all of this is hope. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 and 24, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Hopeful people understand that the road to our better future will have obstacles. 
There will be trials and troubles. There will be sighing and groaning. There will be tears and heartache along the way. But these trials serve an important purpose. They teach us perseverance. Think back to the example of Abraham, our father, and the number of trials he faced. He faced kings and pharaohs, armies and angels, family strife and estrangement. Through it all, Abraham just kept going. The Christian faith teaches us that suffering trains us to just keep going. The testing of our faith, James says, produces patience. But we must let patience have its perfect work, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And when this trial subsides and another follows it, I can look back with the thought, well, God delivered me through the last one. I can get through this one. Because tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, Paul says, produces character. Abraham's justification by faith follows his victory over Lot's kidnappers. Genesis 15 begins with the word of the Lord coming to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Someone pointed that statement out to me a few years ago and reminded me of what happened just before this. Think of the context. Abraham had gained a great victory and the spoils that go with it. But God says, I, I am your shield, Abraham. I am your reward. Why would God say this to Abraham at this time? Well, because prior to this point and in a couple of instances after this, Abraham attempted to be his own deliverer. He attempted to be his own shield. He attempted to be his own provider. Twice he lied about his marriage to Sarah in order to avoid a king's envy and covetousness. Later, Abraham attempted to father an heir through Hagar by human effort. One might say he attempted to obtain the promise by works. Each of these was a major error on Abraham's part. He was attempting to be his own shield his own deliverer, his own provider. But like all of us, these errors and the other trials that Abraham endured, all of these things work together to shape the character of our patriarch, leading him to a seminal moment in Genesis 22. Having assured Abraham that Isaac was the son through whom the promise would be fulfilled, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Abraham, to his credit, trusts in God and obeys. But think about it. Here is a man who had been shaped by trials. Could a man of lesser character act in such a way? I am fully persuaded that Abraham would have never reached his full potential had he never left Haran. Abraham, through tribulation, persevered, and that perseverance produced character. And this is at work in our own lives as well. We live with the hope for a better resurrection. And this hope that we have is what helps transform our lives. 
In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about how much he wanted to obtain this resurrection from the dead. He said he would obtain it by any means. No sacrifice was too great. No earthly tie was too dear. No amount of suffering would stand in his way. He recognized that he was a work in progress. He admits, I have, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. But he persevered, he pushed through these trials, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also lays hold of me. And for him, here was the key to it all. Paul forgot those things which are behind and reached forward to those things which are ahead. He left his past in the dust as he pressed toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The trials taught him perseverance. The perseverance shaped his character. As he concludes in verse 15, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Trials teach us resilience. They teach us how to move forward. They teach us how to keep going. They teach us how to sacrifice what is dear, and over the course of time, our character is shaped. And character, Paul says, produces hope. We see the hopefulness of Abraham in Genesis 22 when, he, when Isaac asks, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham responds, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And as the writer of Hebrews tell us, Abraham said this concluding that God was able to raise Isaac up even from the dead from which also he received him in a figurative sense. Shaped by trials both external and self-inflicted, Abraham's character manifested a growing hope in the power of God to accomplish all that he has promised. This is a perspective which gives our life purpose. As we endure trials, our perseverance grows. As we gain strength in learning how to just keep going, our character is shaped. And as our character grows, our hope for a better future draws closer and becomes more certain. The hopeful person expects and welcomes trials and challenges, knowing that they will make the victory at the end that much sweeter. In Genesis chapter 15, verse number 3, Abraham attempted to negotiate with God by offering a substitute. He says to God, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And according to the customs of the day, Abraham was right. Any male child born in his household would be his heir. But God had something different in mind for Abraham. One born in your house shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then God brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. It was God's will to revive Sarah's womb and bring an heir into the world by miraculous means. God in his foreknowledge was calling those things which do not exist as though they did. 
But this future that God had in mind, this future could not be achieved by human effort. There was nothing either Abraham or Sarah could do to produce a biological heir together. Or to put it another way, the heir was brought into the world by God's grace. God promised to accomplish what seemed not just improbable, but impossible, leaving Abraham and Sarah in a position where they could not possibly claim credit. Notice the pattern established by God with Abraham. God calls Abraham. When calling Abraham, God through foreknowledge makes a promise impossible to achieve by human means. Abraham believes the promise and is thereby justified. And as Paul says, Abraham chose to believe in God's grace, though it ran contrary to hope. Because biblical hope compels us to believe the impossible is possible with God. For a moment, let's think about the seemingly impossible things God promises to accomplish for us. When Jesus taught Nicodemus that one must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus was incredulous. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus then opened the rabbi's mind to the seemingly impossible that the Spirit of God has given to all who are baptized into Jesus and thereby we are reborn because it's by the Spirit Jesus makes the impossible possible. Jesus taught his, his disciples that it is incredibly difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Who then can be saved, they asked, with men this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. And then there's the impossibility of a resurrection from the dead. When Paul presented the gospel to the audience at the Areopagus in Athens, some scoffed at the notion of a resurrection from the dead. Paul asked King Agrippa a few chapters later, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? In all of these cases, we see God proposing to do things for us that seem impossible. And yet, hope makes the impossible possible. Paul closes the 8th chapter of Romans with strains of hope. He tells us in the 8th chapter of Romans that nothing stands in our way. Nothing stands in the way of complete victory if we conquer ourselves by the Spirit. He says life or death does not matter. To, la to live is Christ and to die is gain. He tells us that nowhere in creation is far from God. He is with us at the greatest heights and the lowest depths. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul says there is no power in heaven and earth that can stand in our way. As the theme of the meeting goes, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. What we experience in the present and what we may experience in the future is irrelevant because others have endured and conquered by faith and by our faith in Jesus Christ, we will conquer as well. 
Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? For those who walk in the Spirit, there is no enemy too strong. There is no trial too great. There is no sin too severe. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because Christian hope teaches us that God makes the impossible possible. If you're outside of Christ this evening, I'm going to be blunt with you. You have no hope. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that there was a time when Gentiles were without Christ, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the condition of us all without Christ. We are without hope. There is no better future that awaits us without Jesus Christ. Because there's only, way to God, only one way to God, and that's through him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul talks to the Thessalonians about the resurrection to come. And he tells them, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The world has no hope. The world offers no hope. There is only hope. In Jesus Christ. If you are outside of him this evening and you want to walk out of these doors tonight certain that a better future lies ahead, certain that eternal life is your destiny, certain that this is the path on which you have set yourself and if you remain faithful until death there is a crown of life laid up for you. If you are ready to start this evening we want to help you. We're about to sing the song The Great Physician because he heals every broken heart. He mends all of the brokenness of sin, all of the hurts and the harms that we have done to ourselves. If you're ready for healing and hope this evening, please come forward as we stand and sing number 615.